abandoned at birth on the river of time and space. But I was nurtured and cared for by creatures who have become my friends, my brothers. And this is the reason for my double nature. The reason I call this underworld home. So the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, now, by this is the Dario Argento version. We have to add that caveat because there's more than one version of this movie. Uh, thank you for introducing this to me. This is part of our continuing Dario Argento festival, and so far, Suspiria remains my favorite. Is it okay to say that? Yes. Well, this movie was a big surprise because you said, let's do Phantom of the Opera by Dario Argento. I thought, and I immediately, in my mind, had a very clear idea of what this movie was going to be. It was going to be a contemporary updating with an urban setting, which starred his daughter, because I knew that. So I kept that DVD, which you loaned me there, thank you very much, and put it on. The first surprise is it's a period piece. It's true to the period of the original Gaston Leroux novella, I believe, mm. so, which means 19th century Paris. So immediately I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be very true to the original and it's going to be a very lavish historical production. Matt laughs because he knows what's coming. And, uh, and then it got, got better and better because it's got this gorgeous, I mean, it's showing you this 19th century opera house. It's all, and this is true through the whole film. It's beautifully shot. The period is wonderfully done. And you see the credits and you see it, it has been written by Gerard Braque in, yes. in, in, a, in, a, in collaboration with Dario Argento. Now, Brock is a very prestigious, very respected European screenwriter. He's written loads of films with Plansky and many other people. Sort of top European screenwriter, mostly operating in French and in the French cinema. So I thought, oh, this is a really good sign. What I'm in for is the a very true adaptation of the Gaston Leroux original with a sort of French realistic spirit of, say, Dumas or Zola. So I, this, I, thought, I had a very clear idea. I thought this, this combined with Dario Argento's extraordinary Gothic sensibility, it's going to be really great. So, but almost immediately, I realised that we were not in, not only we're not in Paris, we weren't in Kansas either. It was very strange. Something we should get out of the way quite early on here. Yes. Is that there is rumoured to be a different cut of this film. I hope so. The, well... <laughs> This is the thing. I, I didn't show you this film because it was a good film. I showed you it to show you the difference between our. May Argento I interrupt there? But I think it could be. I don't think it could ever be a great film. But I think it could be a very good film without much, which without much effort. Uh, so well, a different cut would be worth a look. The different cut is rumored to exist in that so much as it was taken out of Argento's hands and re-edited and an oh hour cut God. from it. Oh my God, that now, explains so much. Well, I think it does too. However, there's not a lot to back this up because the footage has never surfaced and Argento won't talk about it. So if it does exist, it explains everything. Because <laughs> this is a film which seems to have been completely shot out of sequence, written out of sequence. Not a lot of it makes sense. And it rushes. Boy, does it rush. And then it, for some reason, slows right down. Um, 
We need to know what, what the original script looked like. Somebody should ask Asya about this because she would have known what was going on. Well, again, she doesn't talk much about her career back then. She's very much living in the present. Um, I did read up on the making of this one because it's something I'd not really done before. And she did, at the time, she was quite critical of it. Um, she was talking about the script and saying that Dario wanted the Phantom to be half rat. That, he wanted. that makes more sense than what we've got. Well, what happened, the idea was that the Phantom, would, the lower half of his face would be a rat. Well, that's, that would make sense. And he'd have sense. rat teeth and a rat mouth, and he'd wear a scarf around half his face. But so all that would of this be his makes version absolute. of the If I may what interrupt at this was, point, because yeah. anybody who's familiar with the Phantom of the Opera may be thinking, rats. So <laughs> <laughs> what happened, the way this movie begins, is this woman's weeping and being dragged along by her surly boyfriend or husband, and she's, uh, I didn't catch the dialogue, but she's obviously upset about something and he's saying the equivalent of I'll get over it and what <laughs> has happened is she's had a, an illicit baby and she's put it in a basket which is rushing along on this river and the river goes underground and it's and the thing this this is one of the great things about this movie is that the river's sweeping along into this underground cavern and there's all these you see these rats and I think at that point in the movie the thing I always think at that point is they want me to feel, oh my God, this is scary and disgusting because it's rats. But I think rats are quite cute. So this never works for me. Well, this is wonderful because as this basket races along in this underground river through these caverns, it's heading for a waterfall and the baby in the basket will not survive the waterfall. So this rat swims pluckily out and grabs the basket and rescues the baby. Now, I'm totally up for a movie which is sort of Tarzan of the Rats, right? That, that about this guy who's been raised by rats. And then adding that to the Phantom of the Opera story. And, and if you, the thing about his, one of my big notes is, he's in this version of the movie, he's not disfigured. I mean, no. he's not, he's, he is friends with rats, which is also a departure, but in not being disfigured seemed to me more a violation of the original. There's a lot of things to cover here. Firstly, that opening is exactly the same as Batman Returns. <laughs> oh, is that the one with the penguin in it? Yeah, the penguin oh, is born, the basket's that? thrown into the river, the basket blows down the river and it's rescued by penguins. But, but yes, and I, I'd even seen that. What an extraordinary it's thing. It's almost that's shot for shot. <laughs> well, and that, but that script that you decided is also written by a genius. It's, it's, is it Daniel, Daniel Waters? Waters? Yeah. yeah, who wrote Well, Hellas? it's about 50 people, that one. Um, yeah, is it? Well, I, I just, anyway, are we, do we know which one was the original? Yeah, uh, Return, um, Batman Returns came first. That was 92, this was 98. So it was within living memory. It's not like people So there's weren't. not much. Okay, so, but, so I, should I feel guilty for loving that scene now that I know it's a rip-off? Um, no, because it clearly didn't register, so that's a good thing. Um, the other thing, obviously, is that around this time, Argento has always had this thing with animals and animals being sentient and aware of their surroundings and helping people. You haven't seen all the films yet, but there's one called Phenomena where flies are helping out the investigation of a murder. Well, but, oh, there's well, one this, where crows I help with the investigation of a murder. This, this is, anybody who knows my oeuvre, my, my, my magnificent <laughs> string of novels, for instance, knows that that's right up my street. Yeah, well, again, um, Phenomena is pretty awful, but we'll watch it because it's fascinating. Um, but going back to uh, the half rat thing, yeah. Arja said to Dario Argento, because they were trying to get John if Malkovich. We just and John Malkovich for people was not familiar with this, uh, Dario Argento's daughter, it looks like it's Asia Argento, but it's pronounced Asia? Asia, yeah. Asia, right. Uh, so she is his daughter and she's starring in this film and she's 
This is the first of the Argento films I've seen in which his daughter appears. I knew her already from because she went on to have a wider career and she's been in loads of stuff and been very good. But this is my first movie seeing her working with her father. Uh, and I just want to say, I think she's very good. But, but so get back to what you were saying, Matt. Well, they wanted John Malkovich to play the Phantom and Malkovich was Oh, but was that would interested. have made much, so much more sense. But what yeah. happened was Malkovich got a directing job and really, really wanted to direct, so he oh. fell out. And then every actor Argento approached said, I'm not doing it because I don't want to have half my face covered for this film. Uh, as a rat? Oh, or be covered, yeah. yeah. And then he settled, and this is, Arjo said to him, um, you need to take that out of the script because it's not working. Um, no one's going to do it. And in the end, they ended up with Julian Sands, who said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I think I'll do it, but I'm not wearing covering half my face. <laughs> and at that point, they decided to do a rewrite and actually go with that version of the story. Um, there's quite an interesting, in Dario Argento's autobiography, which came out a couple of years ago, there's not much on Phantom of the Opera, but there is um, a bit where he talks about meeting with Gerard Brack, and they met in a cafe in Paris, and they stayed there, they got there for breakfast, and they stayed there for the entire day, they just talked and talked and talked about this script, and Argento said, I was more than happy because I've got all these stories about Polanski and everything, and working on those stories, so it was a great day. He said toward the end it got a bit weird that we still hadn't left. And it got to beyond closing and they still hadn't left the restaurant. And in the end, Brack said, I've got to own up to this. I'm agoraphobic and I can't bear the idea of going back to my room. <laughs> and he deliberately taken a hotel directly opposite the cafe. So all he had to do was run across the street that he'd been building up the courage to do it throughout the whole day. Oh, extraordinary. Argento felt that that kind of matched the phantom in so much as he didn't want to be outside any more than he had to be. Um, but I like that story just from the point of view that they got to the point where they just had to both stand in the doorway and just leg it across the road and <laughs> said Bracht had never seemed more happy until once he was inside his own house. But that's, that lends an extraordinary um, aspect to a lot of Bracht's writing, not just in this but in other things in which there's a sort of an interior terror to things. Yeah, you? I noticed that as well. It, it was an interesting story. And um, did he... Uh, this is just a very brief rabbit hole. I think Brock might have written The Tenant, might do, which, which would really uh, resonate with some of what we were just talking about. Any road. Um, yes. So Asha said that. Um, she said, you've got to take that out of the script and it proved to be true. Nobody yeah. was going to do it. Half their face covered. Well, I've got to say, those actors are all sissies. Presumably Malkovich was up for it because that's what this part requires. It requires a guy who's hideously disfigured on at least half his face. And even in 98, you were still in a position where you could get big actors to come over to, in this case, Hungary rather than Italy, yeah. to shoot a film and hope that they never get it seen anywhere in the US. So they'd be quite happy to just do that for the yeah, easy money. I mean, they, they should have really should have done that. I, the thing about hanging out for, holding out for a certain kind of actor, like, um, like Sands, who, I, who incidentally I really quite like. I don't think he's very good in this, but I do think he's good. The... Did they even need a, somebody who is a great actor or even could act in, in English for a part where it was much more a physical thing? Well, this it, normally in terms of the opera, it would be a phys more physical part, but this one is a much more considered phantom. And the idea is that he's meant to be ugly inside or disfigured inside is the, their way of putting it. Oh, is that it. why he suddenly gets really mean to Asia after first yeah. seeming to really be in love with her? He has these moments of... And like, this is the problem is that we, we're given a scene right at the very beginning of the film where he kills two guys working in a well three guys I think 
Um, for, yeah, but how does apparently that? Apparently, no reason. <laughs> yeah, and also, how the hell they remove? <coughs> excuse me, they're in a well. They remove a brick, and then steam seems to come boiling out. Yes. And the, one of the guys is severed in half, and like it's just bonkers. But I'm willing to go with the bonkersness if it was if there was an overarching plot which resembled the Phantom of the Opera, but there is no longer such a thing. If you read um, Sergio Stivaletti, who did the visual effects on this, which are treme- generally tremendous. There are there actually are some pretty good effects in this. Certainly the um, the rats are superb. Some of those mechanical rats are really good. Well, I didn't know how many were mechanical, but I didn't notice uh, any any rat a person um, interacts with for the most part is a mechanical one. So the ones that get trodden on or kicked or anything. Well, thank like that, God for that. Um, he did a really good job on those. But in his diaries, there's a bit where he's talking about the phantom steam powered organ. If you'll pardon the expression. And oh, yeah. I think the idea is is that these were steam-powered bellows and that the bellows were behind that wall. And this oh, but you see kinda, that? If somebody had indicated well, that to I me... I think would... this lends a bit of credence to the idea that some of this film has been cut. Oh, yeah. So that might explain... I mean, look, I'm not defending this film. I just think that... You should, though. Some, I think you should. Someone like Argento, is, we know he's not a bad filmmaker because you've seen his good films. So this isn't the kind of thing that he would absentmindedly forget to include in a script. So I think something's definitely wrong here. Well, there are things that, that I think he must take the rap for, but let's wait and see. So, okay, <laughs> the, everybody's expecting a Phantom of the Opera story, so it begins with a rip-off of Batman 2, uh, uh, which is his... But I, I prefer the comparison with Tarzan, which is at the heart of both of those, isn't it, where you, you were raised by animals in the wild. Edgar Rice Burroughs, a true genius, came up with that. So he's raised by rats, but what, part of my problem was that the rat thing doesn't seem central to, to the, what he is. If his face had been half rat, I can't imagine what the explanation for that would have been, but at least then he's like a, a, a rat version of the Phantom of the Opera. My problem with this was it was sort of half-assed. It had the rats and it didn't use them properly. Well, he is at least depicted as a drowned rat. <laughs> he's got the straggly hair and everything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> that's about as close as it gets. And also Julian Sands has quite a pointy face. So well, all those things are true, but, but he didn't, he could have, played it way more rat-like and I did think of Willard at one point which it doesn't quite it could have gone in that direction it didn't because the rats are kind of a <laughs> I'm just I'm just pausing here because my stack pipe is settling so my kitchen sink is making noises like there's a monster isn't it? so it's quite I, effective for a phantom of the opera things so. oh yeah okay so so that might be it, it is a bit like that there's a great close-up of a, a rat with red eyes, which is a, so I thought that's a very um, Dario Argento thing because he often has these critters with red eyes. It happens in Suspiria, doesn't it? Um, not red eyes, but there are those eyes that appear at the window, and there's also we did um, Deep Red the other day, and there's that single eye that appears in the wardrobe. So he's he's big on showing eyes. And I do think red eyes have appeared in a couple of things. I don't think it was just a bad acid trip because I don't take acid. Uh, so this movie, th- let's get back to the, the fact that it's set in 19th century Paris. It's a historical piece, voluptuously, opulently well done. The fact they shot it in Hungary makes sense because they were, would have been able to um, f- uh, bring Paris back to life way more cheaply than, you, ironically, you could have done it in Paris. So I've been to Budapest and it actually looks like Paris. Uh, I went there years and years and years ago. And it looked like Paris if Paris had been shut for the weekend because it was it's sort of a... That was still was it still behind the Iron Curtain in those days? Anyway, yeah. so Hungary stands in really well 
for France, um, uh, or, or you know, they they could they recreated Paris and the Opera House beautifully. I thought that was one of the great strengths of this film. They only shot that for the interior of the Opera House. Everything else was done in studio, so it's a very studio-bound film, especially the caves, which look terrible with their flat floors. Well, that saying that. But this is the first inkling I've had that the caves were some natural wonder. So please don't t t take what Matt's saying with a grain of salt. I thought, wow, they found some real caves to shoot in underground. I, I thought you could never some do this. Some of it is. Oh, okay. The, is some of stuff... it is. Um, it's mainly the stuff where they're running down corridors. As it, that's that's the, the cave equivalent of running down corridors. So when the phantom's chasing yeah. um, the uh, the washerwoman. That's woman, the real think. or the fake? That's the fake. Yeah, that would be. The, the actual bits of cave with water, are they real? Um, some of them, yeah. The the main bit that's real is the the bit with the phantom at the end where they're they're going off in the boats. So the boat uh, stuff is all real. Well, we'll get to that because it's that's kind of insanely bonkers in its own way. Okay, so the caves. I thought the caves were very good. Uh, this is a little cross reference here, but not as good as the caves in the, the layer of the white worm. They're fucking great caves. But we'll get back to that in that that wonderful Ken Russell film in another podcast. <laughs> uh, so I like the caves. I like the rats. Um, I liked Asia Argento, and I think we have to get the creepy thing out of the way quite quickly. That, that it, actually, it's not, I don't. Is it that creepy? John Borman in his film Excalibur uh, has his daughter kind of in a bikini being shagged by a knight. I don't think I've made that up. So maybe it's just not that weird for you to put your daughter in a film and uh, put her in erotic situations. I mean, he had done this twice before. So she's in trauma and she's in Stendhal syndrome, which are the previous two films. When you said she's in trauma, I thought you were referring to what happened to her psyche as a result of it. So she's in a film called Trauma and also in Stendhal syndrome, which you'd also learn to me. And I noticed that when I was going through a stack of DVDs. I well, thought, well, that's interesting. The Stendhal syndrome, I really like. And I think she's superb in it. It's very much him reacting to... Because he used to be called the Italian Hitchcock. Yeah, and not a bad is, thing to be called, though, is it? He's actually made a film called um, Do You Like Hitchcock as well, which is a later giallo um, after this. Are there any the, interesting comparisons, just briefly, to, to be made between Argento and Brian De Palma? No, I don't think so. Nope, interesting. No. Not for that. I, well, as we will find out on a later podcast, I don't really rate De Palma. So... <laughs> You really um, choked on your drink then, I do apologise. <laughs> yes, but, but uh, largely because I know that the film in question is going to be one in which you, which you love. And you'll probably um, say something like, I think this is the best film De Palma ever made. Yeah, I certainly think it's the most watchable. We'll, we'll go back to that later, because that's a, that's a whole different phantom. Okay, so you were talking about uh, Argento's mastery of... Well, we were talking about Asia's uh, involvement with yeah, the father's uh, films. Yeah, so uh, in, it's interesting. I, was, I used two sources for this. You've got his autobiography, which is called Fear, which came out a couple of years ago. And there's also a lovely big book from FAB Press called uh, Profondo Argento by Alan Jones. And there's a chapter in that that covers Phantom of the Opera where she discusses how awkward and unpleasant it was shooting nude scenes in front of her dad and shooting sex scenes. And oh, how but it, you see, I says, find that a tremendous relief because it seems like a normal reaction. Yes, it does. But then he, Argento's got a contemporary interview as well where he says, you know, she needed time after the scene. She sort of sat with her back to the rest of the crew in a chair. She didn't really talk to anyone. She needed to recover. It was weird, which was interesting. But then you read his autobiography and either he's retroactively changed his memory of this, I don't know, but he says um, they used a body double 
Now, you and I have both seen the film. There's no way she's got a body double in that. He also said well, they had to cover up her tattoos, and she didn't have the tattoos then. Well, that Sorry. is strange, because she, she is pre-tattoo here. Um, that's true. Well, oh, she may have had a couple, but they're easy to cover. They're easy to cover. Well, and I, and I'd be easily deceived, and I've got nothing against tattoos either, because some of the nicest people have them. But, they're just not very 18th century. <laughs> um, a patrician, the 18th century aristocrat, exactly. So... We've got the nude scenes out of the way, which is always good to do early in the podcast. The thing well, is, we haven't quite got them out of the way because no. there's some further peculiar nude scenes. You've got border borderline uh, bestophilia, <laughs> bestiality, if you will, with Julian Sands and the rats. Okay, well, now I wondered if I'd imagined that because what happens is, so for the readers, the, sorry, the listeners back home, what happens is, um, this is after our heroine Christina, played yes. by Azure Argento. And Christine Dyer. Uh, beg your pardon? Christine Dyer is the, 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 the lady in front of Christine Dyer. Christine. Yeah. Uh, so th- this, in this regard, it's similar to the classic Phantom films because there is a beautiful chick who's a singer in the opera house and the, she is, romantically is perhaps the wrong word, but she's, her, her destiny is intertwined with the Phantom because he's obsessed with her, right? So it's so far so Phantom of the Opera. So what has happened is in this film... They have constant. This, this is done as a rather kind of romantic, gothic, doomed love affair kind of thing, where they've. She's gone down to his lair. He had, for a guy who's been raised by rats in a cave, he's got a really nice place. It's got to be said, right? <laughs> it's a very luxurious, uh, plush, opulent place that he's. But in. this is true of all phantoms because the phantom ah, steals all the sets and the props from the productions oh, of well, the opera see, house. Well, you see, that, his place that would be that. wonderful if there was any hint of that. I was just thinking, this is bonkers. But this is where see, the Charles Dance version triumphs because his lair is just beautiful. It's like an opera set. But we'll come back to that. Some yeah. Other time. Well, no, no, no. You met, that's okay. So that th- again, as with the steam earlier, this is actually there's some. Uh, this makes sense if the story was just clear. Okay, so that's really anyway. They've consummated their romantic idyll together. And she's, she's sort of lying in bed thinking, oh, what a great guy I've just slept with. And then she goes and looks through these <laughs> curtains and he's lying there with a bunch of rats, which to me, I don't think it's wrong. Hey, I do think the thing about rats is they're incredibly intelligent uh, creatures. So I think one should take account of that when, you know, like let's exterminate all rats. Rats are really interesting, highly intelligent, highly social creatures. So this guy, the fact that this guy's made friends with rats and don't forget they've saved his life doesn't seem to me that she should react so badly but he does get a bit weird like he starts sort of undressing and I thought oh he, he's just letting I wondered if the rats were going to like feed on his blood because this is the kind of film territory we're in did you ever think the rats were going to feed on his blood? Um, no I, I remember uh, I watched this film first time with Mark and we both watched this and said uh, he, he's fucking the rats there's no doubt well, about this Mark, uh, Mark and Matt who, who normally we could just condemn as Neanderthals are not barking up the wrong tree here because this scene ends with him loosening his trousers as though to give the rats admission to his private parts and I thought uh, I, I must have just misinterpreted that but no I don't think I did I'm afraid this happens a lot with later Argento films where you have scenes that just make your eyes narrow <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful way of putting it um, there's a, a TV series called Masters of Horror and he did two episodes of that and the Jennifer we should probably cover at some point because um, she yeah please <laughs> add, uh, okay but so add it that add that to, to the, the equation absolutely so up to that point with what I meant about them feeding on his blood I thought it was going to go in Dracula way you know where Dracula's mm. whatever you call them acolytes have to 
he makes a little cat and they drink his blood. This sounds like I'm some kind of perv, but I've just seen, you know, movies like, I keep thinking of that Neil Jordan film, Interview with a Vampire. So, you know, that, because it's that kind of vibe. But it did not go in that direction, and it didn't even go in a rat shagging direction, thankfully. But as your fleas at this point, as may perhaps <laughs> you might begin to think, yeah, she's right. I thought you were going to say something else, then you just stopped. <laughs> uh, I, well, um, I thought I'd completed that thought, and I'd also... I okay, so effects aside, I think we probably covered all the good parts of this film. Yeah, well, no, we have to co consider some... There is one other thing I want to do a shout-out. There's a crazy scene where the Phantom is on the roof of the... Oh, oh I've my got to God, talk about yes. Yeah, but first, let me just say the opera house is very well realised, and I think this comes from Brock. There's a genuine sense of this, the opera as this big institution full of people who have to interact, and it's got this upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey kind of thing going on. Is that fair? Yeah, it has. The opera and house I, is um, its a Hungarian opera house they filmed in, so it was the closest they could get to a Paris opera house because it was too expensive. There's a sense of a real institution and a fascinating institution whirring along and all these people sort of being caught up in it. Yeah, they've got an interesting cast of characters in this one. I quite like their version of Carl Carlotta. In that who's, she who's a, a, a rival opera singer and she's yes. enormously fat. There's a fantastic scene where Julian Sands is threatening her and just calls her you fat cow. Well, I thought that was really uncalled for. She's extraordinary because she's not a very, she's a very unlikable character, but I think the actress is very likable because she does a fab job. I think she does. This is the thing. Um, uh, the only other one I've seen as good as that in probably the worst film adaptation of Phantom of the Opera ever made, because this isn't it. Uh, is Joel Schumacher's version of the Lloyd Webber one. I think Mini Driver is superb as Carlotta. Oh, I'd like to see... Well, you know what? I, I, this is... I'd forgotten that film existed. I walked... I, I used to see seven movies a week, and mm. I never walked out of anything, but I walked out of that. Brilliant. So, Had you seen the stage musical? Matt, you've known me many, many years. How can you ask me a question like that? <laughs> In God's name, would I have gone to see that stage musical? That is it's actually good. very good. Well, uh... Here's a, an index of my respect for you. I'm actually willing to reconsider it in the light of your remark just now. It's one of those things you need to see, and unfortunately, thanks to a pandemic, it's no longer on and isn't going to reopen. Well, so that's, you, that's always very gone. negative about these things. I think it probably will reopen. And They've thrown out the sets. That's never a good thing to do, as they learned on Doctor Who, but let's not go down that rabbit <laughs> hole. Um, it's so sad. It is so sad. I'm thinking of the, the wonderful... Victorian TARDIS set that they just threw outside it just warped in the rain that was Mike Tucker's story broke my rabbit hole uh, out of rabbit hole so the, uh, the Paris Opera House is, is like this genuine thriving institution and we feel that that aspect of the story is very engrossing and it's flavourful the way historical stories are and there are interesting characters like Carlotta and for what you say I didn't even know this being a neophyte in Phantom of the Opera stories so she's a character who regularly recurs in the various versions. She's a grotesque um, lead soprano who is not very good but is loved. So she's, she can sing, but she doesn't have a beautiful voice. And our heroine, Christine, does. Yes, but she's... Obviously, the tradition of female opera singers is big ladies. Christine is a waif, she's small, she's small, she's, like a, she's supposed to be a tiny sparrow. I think that's how LaRue describes her, which is why in this film... Uh, her dresser keeps referring to her as my little sparrow or something like that. But that's wonderful because that's the thing I thought when Hasia does eventually come on and sing, I thought, oh, she's too, just too small to do that. That's supposed to be the way they regarded the character. Yeah. How wonderful. And that works in some films, it doesn't work in others. 
Um, well, I, I think, yes, well, that's interesting. In this, it does to the extent, I want to say about Asia Argento, she's very beautiful. And because of the nude scenes and the creepy vibe of the nude scenes, that's sort of what immediately comes to mind. And this film does uh, emphasise her embonpoint, which is my attempt to pronounce a French word that basically means boobs or cleavage. But the thing that's most striking immediately about her is her eyes. I thought her eyes were hypnotic. Her eyes are creepily absolutely identical to her father's. <laughs> I'm glad you um, managed to find she a creepy has construction her dad's for eyes. Um, especially back then, she was quite tomboyish back then. So this is unusual seeing her in the dress and everything. So when you strong. look at her, you sort of see her father. Yes. That's you it. We see. I don't have that eyes. problem because I couldn't More have so picked out Mr. Argento out of a police lineup. So that to me, that's probably an advantage. I think many people have. <laughs> Good line, very good line. Um, but she, so I say she's gorgeous, and she is a good actress. Like she's one, one, it's a wonderful open emotional quality, and I really kind of warm to her. Well, she gets better because I actually think she's not as good in this or Stendhal syndrome. She's struggling a lot because it's, she's very, very young. She's very. young. Very I don't think. She, I think she's got natural talent. She isn't being very well directed. Sorry, Dario, but well, but also the script that she's gives her all to every scene but this isn't a movie where the scenes add up to like a, 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 an emotional resolution or an intellectual resolution what they add up to is a film in which the rat catcher in this place is a major character which makes sense because the rats are major but the guy who plays the rat catcher is terrible he's just like this overacting shambling wide-eyed is this am i being fair to him no it's a it's a comedy role which doesn't fit the film it kills the tone and it's oh. far too silly You've got that ridiculous steampunk car well, that he built covered in razor blades that drives to, around. Uh, sort of uh, gently lead the listeners into this. So, what happens is there's this crazy scene where the rat catching guy, he's setting his rat traps, and suddenly he, there's this psychic compulsion. We should also add in this version, the Phantom has this kind of psychic, sort of telepathic power that. He used, uh, he and Christine actually developed this telepathic link. Never mind that. At the moment, he's using his psi powers for bad. He's causing the rat catcher to put his own hand into this rat trap, which snaps shut on the guy's hand. And then the rats all scamper forward and begin chewing his fingers off. Now, I'm totally down for all of this because it's yeah. pro-rat. But the thing is, there's a couple of problems with this thing. Not least, what's happened to the other guy's hand and why isn't he swapping, swatting the rats away with it? I don't think anyone gave that any thought. Well, I think it might be because he's under a psychic compulsion and not able to. Do yeah, that, he's compelled to put his hand there. Yeah, but I, I don't okay. see why. If he's a rat catcher and a rat killer, this is a phantom who hasn't doesn't really care if just someone's just doing normal maintenance on a well. He's still going to kill them. So why not kill this guy? Well, that's. I think that we, it, what I'm trying to say is it makes sense. The phantom goes after this guy because he loves the rats. He is of the rats. He's a rat himself. All that makes sense. The rat catcher's character kind of makes sense because he's he's sort of the he's the main bad guy in some draft of the script. He's the main bad guy because he collects rat tails and he keeps them in jars and he has hundreds of jars of rat tails. And as Matt was saying, there's this insane sequence where he suddenly has sprouted a, a very small friend. He's some kind of uh, do you know who the actor is? He's uh, a small person. Right. I'm he avoiding is a using person. the word midget or anything. Well, he's, he's credited as dwarf anyway, so I think dwarf. probably... Dwarf? Well, there's a difference <laughs> between dwarfs and midgets. I don't know what it I is, I don't know the actor. They're, they're mostly Hungarian actors. None of them were big names in this. But suddenly the rat catcher has this sidekick, and, and there's a shot of something. I thought, is that a brass spaceship? 
But no, it turns out that they get into this. Is it like a steam-powered go kart? Is that a fair yeah. assessment? And it's Lumber. got a, a it's got a vacuum cleaner on it, which sucks up the rats and throw. Um, listen, I can imagine if people out there are thinking Andrew's just making this up, and that and Andrew are pulling the leg. No, this is true. So it's it's whirring along. It's rather well shot and well made. It's whirring down these. Cape oh, it's not. It's terrible blue screen work. Well, I, I, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I'm just building up the point that it's the whole scene is. It, yeah, I've lost, I've lost for words. So basically, they're assassinating rats with his steampunk invention, um, and so that they can have a big encounter with the Phantom. Is that what's supposed to be going on here? Well, no. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of purpose to it. If the 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 car just crashes. Well, that's the thing. If the, if Phantom, the Phantom had done it, that thank you, Matt. That's exactly <laughs> what. I'm, so it's just stupid. So it's. I think we've done full justice to the rat catch who are, who potentially if this had been like a kind of Victor Hugo um uh, Dumas de Maupassant kind of approach to things then the rat catcher as the as the bad guy would make sense and you could or, you could organize that into a good tight thriller story that's not what's been done here and you could get a fantastic guest actor to play that anyone could have fun with that and make but, it a good one but role. you you explain why that guy's so terrible is that he's in a different movie he's in a comedy yeah. And that's the trouble with the whole film. It does feel like two scripts have been shoved together. And I think that's probably the problem of um, Argento working with... Uh, I can't remember his name. Brack, 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 Brack. Well, no, Brack wouldn't... I don't think Brack... Brack, I think, is responsible for all the humour in the script because Argento, it's not his writing. I know his writing and I know his dialogue and this isn't his. But do you think when I was talking about that sort of Downton Abbey at the opera kind of thing, which is very well written and has a real sense of subtlety and nuance, do you think that came from Barack? I yeah, I think so, because I think that's much more... I, to be honest, I think that would have made the better film I if focused on I don't think we'd that. have done justice to this if we didn't discuss this bizarre subplot. There's lots of kind of people of the day who are appearing in this film. Like uh, there's Gounod, who's, who's, uh, they refer to him as Maestro Gounod, who is um, uh, uh, appearing like he's he's conducting an opera here? So we, they there are real people featured in this, like Guno, and who's a, a famous composer and conductor yeah. of the day, uh, and I believe he's even yes he's in the credit list. But there's also Degas, who's a famous illustrator of the day, who did sketch ballerinas. Now my first question is, were there ballerinas at the opera house in Paris? I, you know, is that where there's also a ballet place? Anyway, in this movie it is. And there's this, and we see Degas sketching these girls who are much younger, I think, than the girls in the real Degas sketches, because there's this subplot that there's these creepy, fat, rich guys hanging around who like to give the girls sweets, and it is exactly what you think it is. There's this creepy kind of um, child molester who, who's after these girls, and there's this crazy subplot. Is the girl rescued by rats? I hope she is. Well, she's she rescued, rescued by, by the Phantom. Phantom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Phantom now, this then, is actually yes. based in fact in, in as much as that the ballerinas who were all young girls they were usually between I think you started at 9 and you went up to 15 and they were essentially pimped out by this the, the ballet places well it was just the dumb thing at the time is pimped that this is how by, they, by who? who was the, 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 ballet, the ballet companies and the ballet oh, houses this is how uh, it was quite a big scandal that came out that they, um, the majority of the benefactors of the opera houses Oh, the, um, oh I could see this reward. coming. Yeah, I could see and this, this is coming. how they made so much money. This is why they got so much backing from oh, the rich and the So the, I thought this is just the, the, this terrible, ludicrous subplot that had been invented. Yet again, the scales fall from my eyes. Well, then, 
including this makes a lot of sense. But the ballet, the ballerinas have always been part of the um, the Phantom story anyway. So I think. Um, so there are ballerinas at the opera. Yeah, you'd always have a company okay. of dancers, so okay. they're going to be ballet trained. Um, well, then in that case, I think this is one of the strongest elements. It's come from being one of the most like uh, left field, silly, unnecessary elements to being one of the strongest elements of the film. It's a good character builder for the Phantom as well because he saves her and goes out of his way to save her as well. Yeah, he's he in the of doing something He does else. this really elaborate, really st- like the, this is throughout the film. The Phantom does really elaborate, really stupid uh, slasher type things to people. There's a bit where he rips this woman's tongue out. Uh, but not in the scene. So, so he does save the girl from this this hideous man, who apparently is now based on fact, which makes him so much more hideous. So suddenly, actually, now that you mention it, this that horror of the over the top killing doesn't seem quite so bad, which speaks ill of my uh, my. Uh, Again, my this is Argento reacting to the press, in so much as Stendhal syndrome is meant to be a thriller but the only coverage he could get for that film, he couldn't get it from Sight and Sound or Empire or anyone like that. He had to go to places like Fangoria. Oh, that makes sense. These were the only pieces in, places interested in Oh, so that explains work. why... I mean, Fangoria is featured heavily in the extras for this, so this, at this point he was doing something similar. He was basically, yeah, playing to the audience, and the, the gore doesn't need to be in there, and there was an awkward interview with him at the time where someone says, um, you know, is, this, is this a gory horror film? And he goes, well, no, it's a love story, but obviously there's oh. gore in it. You know, it's gratuitous gore, exactly the way there's some really gratuitous nudity. Some of the nudity in this is, is called for or justifiable, but there's some that's just like, let's shove in a kind of sequence in a brothel, and it's a really dumb kind of sequence full of gratuitous nudity. But So we had gratuitous gore, which is on the, the same sort of level. Yeah, the brothel sequence is weird. And it's, it's also painful because... They've painted it as a. Um, I think the idea is it's meant to be like Jesus in the temple, um, you know, throwing crap around, and so that's why he's doing that whole. Oh, I know. I, know. I thought it had a sort of like vaguely Roman thing going on, but that's all I noticed about. Yeah, it. I think that's what that's meant to be is that he's um, trying to resist temptation and the devil, and so he's, yeah, well, the actor that they cast in that took it way too seriously. There's an interview with him as well where he's saying, um, "Oh, I, I I went out and got the cane because I wanted to use it not to walk with, but just to show off because that's what people did back then." I think. Well, 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 that's the actor. That's the guy who's the other love interest. Raoul, yeah, who's yeah. barely in it. And again, you see, I think that's a subplot that's been cut completely. I think there's a lot more with him because they focus on that brothel scene, which is left in. Yeah, I've got a feeling he's with his brother, and he, the, he's really upset being in the brothel because his heart is really with Asia, sorry, yeah. with Christine. And at one point, he sees this prostitute, and he. Th- thinks it's her and it turns into her. I thought that was quite a well realised scene. Yeah, uh, that worked. But uh, but he's really mean to the prostitutes in a way that I found really kind of uh, you can't like the guy after that. No, he doesn't come across well at all. And I wonder if this is part of a massive cut made to the film. It I, it seems I don't know if it's trying to give them too much credit to say oh maybe there was a better film here or whether I think it was there just was a bad a, film. And like if that was part of a character journey, that would make sense. There's a lot of suddenly huge shifts of emotion like where characters are suddenly like I love you I hate you and it's just it's it yeah. doesn't work <laughs> if I may use a complex word like that uh, there was a, another thing with Argento where he was saying that the the intention was to go to the text and make the book because he said no one's actually done that before which is very interesting but then he read the book and said no fuck that <laughs> it's just, it's and, yet you, and yet they've gone back to the genuine historical nature of the opera with that thing you just described about yeah. how the patrons were all predators Phantom is the there anything else like that that's been drawn from history that's, that's of interest 
in well, full this... marks for knowing that. How did you know that, by the way? Which bit, sorry? How did you know that that was an historical truth? Which bit? The, the fact that the benefactors were preying on the, the ballet companies oh, were right. ripping them out. Um, that came from... See, I've read up a lot on Phantom of the Opera. So I think it came from the big uh, Lloyd Webber um, companion they did, the massive book, and they were talking about the writing <laughs> of that. The fact that a big Lloyd Webber companion could, could be a thing of value... Well, it was Richard Stilgo that was being interviewed. Richard Stilgo originally did the lyrics for Phantom of the Opera, yeah. but he was replaced, um, and they replaced most of his lyrics with ones by Tim Rice. Um, he had got done a lot of research, and he said there was loads of stuff he found, and it's a fascinating interview because his research is brilliant. None of it made it to the final production, but the research is there. And well, where, did, where do you think that they got it from, from this movie, from, from Stilgo or from their <laughs> own research? I would love to be in the same room as Dario Argento and Richard Stilgo discussing ballerinas. I don't think it happened, no. I think it's probably just the same research. He, yeah, it, it makes it sense, was, it? it? was quite prominent in the public eye around the time of this film. I remember it being, there was a documentary about it, not on BBC, it was Channel 4, I think. Um, yeah, well, that's horrific. Was there some anything else drawn from history? Because th th it looks like there were powerful things to be mined here if they'd been mined by people who could mine stuff. In mines. this version, not so much. Nothing I can recall immediately. Yeah, so I, have we exhausted well, the, the, the other thing we haven't touched on is the music. Oh, what, thank you. Which, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. That I, I, when I said this film begins really well uh, and it's a beautiful high quality production I thought it was going to be very true to the original I thought it was going to be an A picture and the scores by Ennio Morricone I thought oh, that's wonderful and it, it really lifted the whole movie for me and lifted it in my estimation and then I suddenly remembered this isn't Dario Argento's first time with Morricone he no. started off having Morricone score all his films then he, he went into the wilderness and he, he worked with people like Goblin who I have to say did an amazing job in Suspiria I wouldn't be without the Goblin score for Suspiria he did this thing where he he had forsaken Morricone for years and suddenly he comes back to him. Can you tell me anything about that? Well, this again, I think, lends a bit of credence to the idea that half the film was cut and re-edited because I think Morricone's score is way too patchy. He doesn't adopt themes for characters at any point in the film. So you get... There should be a, more of a mood to the underground stuff. Instead, sometimes you get a big chunk of cheery music over like a rat-fucking scene. <laughs> which needs something a little more sinister and the music sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and I can't believe that someone like Morricone would get that wrong yeah. so I suspect his score has been chopped up and just distributed willfully. because the music has been chopped the film has been chopped up right? yes I, I've got a feeling because it's half a good score I can't believe we're saying this but I feel that we should move for a restoration of this with, with, with the original version because it would probably be a much better film it might be an awful film, and that might be what Argento's thinking, because this was really badly received when it came out, and he took it quite badly. I think this is one of the few instances where a bad film would be better for being longer, and also with a better guy in the rat catcher role. I think that's. I think that would sum up my reactions to this. There's only so much you can restore. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think we probably have exhausted the. Uh, the other thing that does work, I think, in this film at first, is the chandelier, which is horrific. It crushes bodies, it pops skulls, it properly kills people, whereas in most other adaptations of Phantom of the Opera, almost oh, everyone so this, gets again, away. like Carlotta, is one of the tropes of the, the, the Phantom story. Yes. 
How? Well, that's that's good to know, and it, it is it is very dramatic. Have you never seen it. a Phantom of the Opera? Well, no, or read the book. Not for well. Here's the thing. Not only have I read the book, it might have been a condensation, but I used to have this Peter Haining anthology which had all the original stories on which it's called something Movie Monsters, and all yeah, the yeah. horror movies was based. It had The Fly and all these other things, and I, I I went confidently to my bookshelf to pluck it down in preparation for this podcast. Lo and behold, it was gone. And I certainly hope I wasn't fool enough to have got rid of it in one of my purges of my libraries. But we've all been there. All which is to say, I did read it. And I ha obviously I've seen versions of the film, including The Silent. But the, the BBC, years ago, the BBC announced with great fanfare, as they should have, that they were going to do uh, show the original silent uh, black and white film of The Phantom of the Opera, which I was really up to see, but with the colour tinted colour sequences yeah. which I was really excited about and I remember I was over at my girlfriend's house and I should have been snogging my girlfriend but I insisted I snog her in front of the television with the Phantom of the Opera playing and uh, so lo and behold we did this I think her sister was there and she was snogging her boyfriend too and I insisted that everybody watch the Phantom of the Opera and I was <laughs> waiting and I was waiting and I was waiting for the tinted sequences then I realised we were watching black and white television <laughs> and there were no recorders in those days so I'd blown my chance to see the <laughs> tinted colour version so all of which is to say I'm totally up for seeing a proper version of the Phantom of the Opera and I do have fragmented I've seen I've, I've seen various bits and pieces of the version I w walked out of the Schumacher version I must have seen ones when I was a kid. The truth um, is there isn't a proper version because as Argento discovered when you go back to the book all those things you, you associate with Phantom of the Opera have been cherry-picked from other productions and other sources and actually a lot of it isn't in the book but you've become to know it and as he said so to do a, a straight-up book a film of the text is going to disappoint people so he instead tried to pull, all together, pull together all the bits he liked from it and that's exactly what I Are would there do. any rats in the original? I don't think the rat catcher's in the original. I, I Honestly, the book I've not read in probably about the same time you did. I think I read that when uh, I went... It would have been 87, 88. I read that. Was it the same anthology? He said, hoping for some spooky synchronicity. No, I had a lovely paperback with uh, Claude Rains on it, I think. Oh, okay. Now, is Claude Rains... He's in the first sound version, is it? Yeah. Well, let's... let's is that any good? They're all good in the Long pause. Way. I was going to say, let's add that to the pile. Well, again, it's one I've not watched in a long time. They're all, like I say, they're all good in their own way. They all have elements that, that is work. Parenthetically, probably the one I saw because I would have been watching whatever was on the telly uh, in the early sixties. So that I would have thought you'd be more likely to see the Herbert Lomhammer version, wouldn't you? I, I don't know, mate. It's d it depends on what CKY TV uh, was transmitting and CBC at, at that time when they were showing stuff on TV because I wouldn't have seen this in a, any other format. Um, fascinating. Let's move on to other versions of the, the Phantom and indeed uh, other podcasts for today because what we're doing on a very snowy uh, Sunday afternoon in southwest, in, all over the place, in southwest London and in Epsom, which is in Surrey, folks, which is where Matt is, we are recording this on a very wonderful snowy day. So let's, uh, with no I've got to drive my daughter to work soon and that means digging the car out, which I'm not Oh, well, that'll be, this, uh, listen, dude, I grew up in a place <laughs> in Winnipeg where that, that was just every day, snow shovels. Yeah, so, but this is England, isn't it? We, we don't cope with weather. <laughs> Before we say goodbye to the fan of the opera, I wanted to say, it's got, you can't dismiss this film. It's got a lot of great talent in it. It's, and it's, it's kind of cruelly dis... The film is cruelly disfigured in a way that Julian Sands' character isn't. And I, I think that's a pat ending for a podcast, don't you? 
I think that's pretty much bang on for the money. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Where have you been? The Phantom ate my soup, you.